Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and then in a bit we'll get to Song of Solomon 3. Genesis 2, and then in a little while we'll come to Song of Solomon 3. The text we're doing in Song of Solomon 3 is straightforward. It is delightful. It doesn't take just a, a ton of explanation. Tonight I want to talk to you about the high institution of marriage. The high institution of marriage and all throughout history, really going all the way back to Adam and Eve, Satan has worked very, very hard to devalue and to demolish marriage in our society. If it wasn't so important, he wouldn't go after it. But he has gone after it because marriage is the building block upon which our world is is made. It is the foundation of a society. And there are numbers of ways that Satan has attacked marriage, not in any order of importance, and this certainly isn't a, an exhaustive list at all. But some of the ways that Satan has attacked marriage, one would be through feminism. Feminism is the idea that woman is essentially her own God and that her gender is not part of a bigger plan to be joined male and female. And we could equally even uh, say that masculinism would be something that is uh, destroying marriage. That would be the domineering husband, the harsh, the abusive, the selfish, the dictatorial, the oppressive. Homes that are made unbearable by a man who is impossible to live with. We would also say that Satan has worked through rebellious wives. The curse of Genesis 3 indicates that women will desire to rule over their husbands. That will be your natural nature to want to be in charge. And this turns God's design for marriage upside down and creates chaos and creates pain, creates agony in homes with contentious women. Three or four times the book of Proverbs tells a man, better to live in the desert, better to live on your own roof than to live with a contentious woman. There's the taking over of the authority of marriage by human government. That's a satanic move. The taking over of of the authority of marriage by human government. We automatically now think in terms of the government authorizing marriage. What do we go get? A marriage what? License. License to be married. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But God has never given government that authority. That is beyond their bounds. Is beyond what they're authorized to do and because of that you also have satan bringing in the redefinition of marriage by human government the redefinition of marriage once government started being involved in marriage it began to think it can define and redefine marriage the government issuing laws about the definition of marriage is like if the the supreme court ruled that you are now purple it has no bearing in reality God doesn't care what the government says about marriage. God doesn't care what our Supreme Court says about marriage. It's irrelevant. They have no voice. They're they're silent. Another way Satan has devalued and attacked marriage, sexual immorality, which removes the motivation to get married. Sexual immorality takes the beautiful gift of intimacy in marriage and just twists it and distorts it. And for thousands of years, young women have been giving their virginity to men before marriage with the promise of commitment, only to find that he's no longer interested. That's been the the oldest story ever. On the flip side of that, you have, even within the church, problems that Satan brings through the church. One of those is the the going to the opposite extreme that in order to avoid sexual immorality, we will now paint human sexuality as dirty, as evil, as rotten, as horrible. And what that ends up doing is nothing more than a pharisaical hedge. Let's put a hedge around God's law so that we don't come anywhere near to violating his law. But that's pharisaical. Those are man-made rules. And what that ends up doing, and trust me, as one who has spent a lot of time doing marriage counseling, what that ends up doing is that if a young person or a young couple enters into marriage with a faulty view of human sexuality, that it's dirty, that it's wrong, that it's it's bad, that it's evil, that marriage becomes very, very difficult, becomes very, very unwholesome and very unbiblical. 
And also in the church, we've seen, particularly starting in the last 30, 40 years, the devaluing of marriage by the church. And how has this happened? I think primarily that, that for some reason, even churches that, generally speaking, preach the word of God, suddenly when it comes to marriage, we start taking advice and so-called help from secular psychology, from secular counseling, from so-called gurus on marriage, and throw a few Bible verses in. Because there hasn't been a systematic study what the Bible actually says about marriage as our only authority. And so all of a sudden, you have, uh, you have so-called Christian psychologists who say that they're the, they're the authority on marriage. And they, they speak out of their counseling experience instead of out of what the Word of God says. And so that devalues marriage, that all of a sudden now it becomes something uh, less than divine, less than holy. And when we started our series in Song of Solomon, I said that that, even has, that, that attitude has crept into the preaching of Song of Solomon, that there's a, a, a silliness, there's a, a giddiness, there's even a, a, a sense of being uh, inappropriate and having lack of propriety. Song of Solomon is not a book about sex. Song of Solomon is a book about God's view of marriage, which includes intimacy. And so it is the word of God. And so we don't want to devalue marriage as the church has often done. Those are just a few examples that I think I've shown you that marriage has taken a beating from Satan. Absolutely taken a beating and from Satan and from our culture. And so we have only one source to know God's will. The only spiritual authority on marriage, and that is the word of God. And part of the devaluing of marriage by the church has been somehow this separation that my motivation for trying to be a good husband or trying to be a good wife or try to have a good marriage is simply that, that I want it to be good, that I want something, that I want my marriage to be functional. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, there was a big word, dysfunctional. Well, I don't want a dysfunctional marriage. Well, how do you know what a functional one is? Well, you have to look at the word of God. And instead of now seeing marriage as simply one aspect of our obedience to Christ has been separated out as something different. Well, I'm committed to God. I'm committed to his word. I'm committed to the church. And then my marriage is this different entity. But it's not. What does Romans 12 tell us? To offer your bodies, meaning your whole lives, as a living sacrifice. And so our motivation here. My motivation for preaching through Song of Solomon is not to make your marriages better. That will be a byproduct. My motivation is for you to understand that your marriage, reflecting what God's word says, gives God honor and glory and praise. And that's what all of our lives are to be about. That your marriage is an offering to the Lord that should be a sweet-smelling aroma. So tonight, I want to just focus on the High Institute high institution of marriage and and elevate this and i want to do this in two parts first of all i want to remind you of the origin and the definition and the nature of marriage we looked at this a number of years ago on sunday night but i think it's worth revisiting the origin the definition and nature of marriage and we'll do that in genesis 2 and then secondly i just want to walk briefly through song of solomon 3 6 through 11 because it presents us with really a a stunning view of how exalted and precious and holy and special God's invention of marriage of a man and a woman is to be. So first, I want to remind you of the origin, the definition, and the nature of marriage. Because not only did God create mankind, the man and the woman were created for marriage, with very few exceptions. Marriage is an institution created by a direct act of God. It wasn't an afterthought. Man and woman were created so that they could be married. And so let's look at the, the origin of marriage here in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And here's the contrast. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. In other words, fit for him, it means corresponding to him. It's literally a word that means a mirror image. The same, yet different. 
Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a sense that Adam understands that he's been waiting for something and and how cognizant he is of what he was waiting for, we're not certain. But when he says this at last, he knows that he's been completed. He knows that his life is now complete. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And again, we've said this before, Song of Solomon is really God's, helping us to return to Genesis 2.25, that your marriages are a little taste of a pre-sin world, a pre-fall world. Now, both the origin and the definition of marriage are found in this text. And and I won't go through every verse, just kind of hit some highlights here. Genesis 2.18 initiates this gift to humanity when God says it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And Based on these verses I just read, we could find five basic components to a definition of marriage. Four of them are explicit in the text, and one is a logical implication with some scriptural support elsewhere, which I'll show you. Now, let me just show you five basic components to a definition of marriage that we can see from this text. First of all, marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. You know, it used to be even just a few years ago, you had to say, that now we have to be really clear about that. Marriage is between the man and the woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. We understand that. Now we have to also be clear that marriage is not between somebody who doesn't know how to identify themselves and who is uh, what they call non-binary, whatever they want to say. But we always have to go back to this. Male and female, God created them. In verse 22, God made a woman and brought him to the man. We don't get to reinvent marriage. It's God's gift to humanity. We don't reinvent that which God creates. The second basic component, marriage, is exclusive. It's exclusive. Not only does verse 18 state that God will make one helper for the one man, verse 24 says that the two shall become one flesh. This is an intimate picture of what one writer has called by unity, the unity of the two, the oneness of the two. The third basic component, this marital exclusivity extends for a lifetime. It extends for a lifetime. Verse 24 says that the man is to hold fast to his wife. This is a a perfect imperative verb. It means that it's, it's a command and the steps are to be followed and there's a permanent result. It's a permanent arrangement in the sinless world that God originally created. And this lifetime component is very well supported elsewhere in Scripture. Romans 7.2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. We would give a fourth component. Marriage is created before God. The marriage is created before God. It's brought about before God. Not only did God create marriage, but in verse 23, when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This can be taken as a wedding vow. And who's the witness? God is there. He's the witness. The marriage commitment is made before God. Listen carefully. Whether the spouses know God or not, As part of the creator-creature relationship. Marriage was given by God. And even if two spouses don't acknowledge God. It's still God's gift. And whether or not they acknowledge that. Is then an issue of judgment between them and the Lord. But I want to be very clear about this. Marriage is given to humanity. Not just to Christians. In fact that's uh, on, on many ordination exams. For future pastors. The question sometimes is asked. Will you do the wedding of two unbelievers? The usual answer is, no, I wouldn't do that. But according to Scripture, marriage is given to humanity. The right answer is, yes, I would be happy to do a marriage between two unbelievers because what an opportunity to present the gospel. You're literally showing them a picture of Christ. 
And there's a fifth component, and this isn't explicit in the text, but it's, it's very much an easy implication to come to, and that is that the marriage is created before God and created before others in the sight of others. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve had no other witnesses to their marriage. I suppose they had a, you know, a couple of cats and a dog and a lion and, and that sort of thing. But the community aspect of marriage is very, very important. Your marriage doesn't exist in a vacuum. It wasn't begun in a vacuum. How many of you got married and just said, you know, let's send out zero invitations whatsoever. Save a lot of money, save a lot of time. The venue can be, you know, the living room. Doesn't make any difference. Almost everybody instinctively wants to be married with a community because we're part of a community. And how do we know this from Scripture? What's the implication? Well, the implication is, is that we see that the dissolution of a marriage, the, the dissolving of a marriage, has implications for the entire community of faith, not just for the couple. In other words, other people are counting on your marriage to be vital and obedient to the Lord, because if it isn't, it pollutes everyone around you. That's why divorce is so destructive, because it just, it's like an atomic bomb dropped in the ocean that just ripples outward. It just destroys everything in its wake. It's not a victimless crime, as they say. I'll give you an example. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus said, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever commit, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, did you catch that? Jesus here gives an example of a woman whose husband has divorced her for some frivolous reason. By the way, one school of thought in Jesus' day taught that a man could divorce his wife if she burnt his dinner or if she didn't like his mother. Well, if that was the case today, we'd all be divorced probably. But now this divorced woman is made to commit adultery? What does that mean? What did he mean by that? That she's being forced to sin even though she's the, she's the victim? Maybe in some cases, but this is much more speaking to the fact that divorce pollutes and impacts everyone around it. And put this in Jesus' time. A woman who has a horrible husband and this husband decides to leave her and gives her a certificate of divorce for no reason. As far as the community is concerned, that man has left for a righteous reason because nobody knows any different. And all of a sudden, that woman is now unmarried. What's the community going to think of her? Oh, she must have committed adultery. It has horrible implications. And so marriage isn't just before God, it's before your community. Your marriages have a, you have a, a responsibility, probably first and foremost, to who? To your kids. What a, what a destructive impact divorce has on children. So marriage is, is not only before God, but before the community. So now we know the origin and the definition of, but what's the nature of marriage? What's the flavor, so to speak, of the arrangement between the man and the woman? There's generally three views of the nature of marriage that have been prominent, and I want to walk through these. First view is that marriage is a sacrament, that marriage is based in the law of the church, the church law. The sacramental view is largely a product of church tradition. It has its roots in the writings of Augustine. The Roman Catholic religion officially codified marriage as one of the seven sacraments at the Council of Trent in 1545. And now, in fact, in the Catholic religion, it's become one of the seven ways that you accrue the grace of God towards salvation. That's why you rarely hear of an unmarried Catholic for very long, because it's one of the ways you go to heaven, is to get married, according to their false gospel. But this makes marriage and marriage vows now have mystical powers. There's nothing in Scripture that speaks of marriage as dispensing salvation grace whatsoever. You know, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter speaks of a married couple as being fellow heirs of the grace of life. Uh, regardless of what interpretation you take on that, we don't take it that marriage somehow points you toward heaven. According to the church law view or marriage as a sacrament, marriage serves to place husbands and wives 
really under the authority of the church, not just as individuals, but their marriage under the authority in, in a way that's overly controlling, in a way that is not right. A little side note, by the way, it's very easy for us as good Protestants to disagree with that, but I want you to think about something. Many sources I've read from conservative evangelicals talk about couples getting the church's permission to marry or getting the elder's permission to marry. What is that? That's leftover Catholicism is all, is all that is. The question is, do I as your pastor or do our elders as spiritual leaders really have the authority to say you can't get married? And we can certainly have the authority to tell you in the strongest possible terms that this marriage is a bad idea for any number of reasons. We can admonish that 2 Corinthians 6.14 commands not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's not a passage specific to marriage, by the way. It's just a principle to keep you out of the pain, to keep you out of the misery. In fact, we can even personally decide to not endorse an upcoming marriage. I make a rule with every couple that I've potentially going, I'm potentially going to perform their ceremony because, by the way, there's nothing in Scripture that says I, as a pastor, is obligated to perform weddings. Did you know that? It's not part of a pastor's job description. But I always make a rule. If you let me know that you've been, you been sexually promiscuous, I'm not doing your wedding. I don't care if I find out an hour beforehand, get somebody else. And I've had to pull that string once. A couple of weeks before a wedding, I had a confession we're sorry, we just couldn't wait. And I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to find somebody else because I'm not going to endorse lack of self-control. They still got married. And what was God's will from that moment? It was that they be married because that's God's will. They're, they're married and that covenant is before God whether they know it or not. And so then we hope and pray to see righteousness and to see goodness in that marriage. So Orthodox Christianity really should heartily reject the sacramental view of marriage, that the church law creates marriage. It's essentially turning marriage into one means toward a works-based salvation. We don't want to do that. The second view of marriage concerning the nature of marriage, and that is marriage as a contract. Marriage as a contract is based in civil law. Now, I talked about this a moment ago. It's based in the government. This is the view of marriage as being rooted in civil law as the ultimate authority. That Kern County is, for example, the ultimate marriage authority as far as we would be concerned. And this marriage is viewed as a contract. It's a bilateral agreement entered into for your own benefit. And the agreement is conditioned on the continued performance of contractual obligations by the other person. Doesn't that sound like the fine print at the end of something or that, that really fast talking at the end of a commercial. We even legalize this view of the marriage in the form of legally binding documents known as prenuptial agreements. That if you don't live up to everything, then just to let you know, our one flesh is, was never really real. In fact, this view of marriage has made its way into the normal church ceremony in which the pastor says... Quote, by the authority given by the state of California, I pronounce you husband and wife. I don't ever say that. Because the state of California did not give authority to marriage. We sign marriage licenses. We get marriage certificates from the state. Why do we, why do, we do this? Well, basically to be nice and to not make waves. Because it's an easy thing to do. It's not an issue worth invoking civil disobedience in most, if not in all cases, but the reality is, is that the contract view of marriage is not found in Scripture. The Bible never authorizes human government to have any say in marriage. It's higher than human government. But in most legal systems, there's no law against a couple living together without a marriage license. And some Christians, and this happens today, might decide to get married before God and before their community and Don't let the government stick their nose in it. They won't get a marriage license. They won't get a marriage certificate. What would we say to that? We would say they are being biblical. But it gets a little sticky when other institutions require a proof of marriage for something you may need. If you're going to change your name on your social security card, your driver's license, and so forth, it gets really, really difficult if you don't have that marriage certificate, that marriage license. And so there's generally no reason to fight this. But for all of you who get married someday, just remember, when you sign that marriage license, you're just jumping through the hoops to keep from making waves. The government does not give you permission to get married. God already did. God already gave that. 
And that's not an easy, that's not a difficult argument really to, to work through, but there is, of course, the main danger with state-authorized marriage that now the state, meaning the government, now assumes power to regulate and define marriage, doesn't it? Including so-called marriage between same-sex couples and begins to regulate how society is to treat same-sex couples. And so marriage is not a sacrament, it's not a contract. What is it then? There's a third view of marriage, marriage as a covenant. Marriage as a covenant, marriage based in not church law, not civil law, but in divine law. The marriage is a solemn commitment with promises and obligations. And yes, it does incorporate some features of a contract, but it's higher and it's loftier in that one's agreement to continue being married isn't contingent on the other spouse's obedience, except in very extreme cases, which scripture outlines and addresses. This is very important because you're not saying, I promise to love you as long as certain things are fulfilled on your part. The covenantal view of marriage is strongly supported in Scripture. I'm just going to fly through seven reasons that marriage is a covenant. First of all, a covenant is implied in Genesis 2.24. It's implied in Genesis 2.24. The leave and hold fast language, uh, more popularly leave and cleave from the King James Version, this is covenant language. What is this saying? This is a shift in loyalty and devotion from one entity, your parents, to another, to your spouse. That's covenant language. Second reason this is covenantal Marriage as a covenant is explicitly stated in Proverbs 2.17. So you can just say Proverbs 2.17 is a reason. This condemns the adulterous woman as one who, quote, forgets the covenant of her God, forgets the covenant of marriage. There's a third reason, Malachi 2.14. Malachi 2.14 defines marriage as taking, quote, a wife by covenant. It's a fourth reason it fits the pattern of covenants in Scripture. It fits the pattern of all the covenants in Scripture. In all the covenants found in Scripture, there exist great blessings for obedience and great curses for disobedience. Consequences for violating the covenant. And that's the same in marriage. You have the blessings of companionship, sexual intimacy, children, offspring. Those can be abundant. But you also have the consequences of pain, of life-altering sins and divorce that can happen when that covenant is broken. So fifth reason this is a covenant. The covenantal view most accurately reflects the high regard for marriage that Jesus has. He has a high regard for marriage. Uh, Matthew 19, 5 and 6, Jesus declared the enduring nature of marriage with great clarity. And he goes all the way back to the foundation of marriage in Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. He said in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The sixth reason this is covenantal, it most accurately reflects the high regard for marriage by Peter. Peter gives this beautiful portrait of a submissive, loving wife and a sensitive, loving husband. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, it's, it's covenantal in nature. It's not contractual. How do we know this? Because Peter gives instructions to a wife married to a bum on how to keep on being faithful. You don't do that with a contract. You do that with a covenant. And seventh, the covenant view most accurately reflects Paul's view of marriage most accurately reflects Paul's view of marriage. He wrote extensively on marriage. He saw marriage as under the authority and the banner that is the flag of Christ. Ephesians 5, through 33. Marital obligations were to be fulfilled for the sake of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 7. He outlined the honorable state of marriage in 1 Timothy 2, 15 and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. That it is high, it's lofty, it's honorable, it's heavenly. Paul gave detailed instruction concerning fulfilling God's God-ordained roles in marriage, again in Ephesians 5. And in fact, marriage in Ephesians, where he writes about it the most, should be seen in the larger context of the book, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, the marriage relationship reflects the complete total headship of Christ, which ultimately should go into every aspect of life. Why should you work at your marriage? To have a good marriage, that may or may not work out. You work at your marriage because it honors the Lord. And so the covenantal view of marriage is the only appropriate view to have. It's the highest, it's the loftiest, it's the most heavenly, it's the most God-honoring. And the implications of marriage as a covenant are immense. There's a few implications. First of all, unconditional love is now built into the fabric of marriage. It's built in. It's not something that, that you have to kind of come to a conclusion about. In fact, we reflect this in the classic marriage vows for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness as in health. The covenant view says it doesn't matter what's happening. And sometimes when your lives aren't going that well, you might renew your vows and simply say for worse, for poorer, or for sickness. Just make it easier. But we're together. If we really believe the contractual view, the contract view of marriage, our marriage vows would be more like this. I promise to love you as long as you keep me happy. There's another implication of the marriage's covenant. God becomes the central motivator in marriage. He's the central motivation. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He's the focus. Ephesians 5.25 tells husbands to look to Christ for the model of how to love their wives. 1 Peter 3.7 tells husbands that their prayers could be hindered if they willfully dishonor their wives. This goes both ways, by the way. Another implication of marriage as a covenant, it acknowledges God and not the church and not the state as the authority over and the giver of marriage. There's a, there's a greater sense of gravitas, of weightiness, of importance to marriage. And, and I think that that is so important. If you, could, if you could possibly get to a point in your marriage where when you're having difficulties, whether from outside your marriage or from whether the, own, the sin within your marriage, if you had this picture just emblazoned on your mind that God is watching and God wants your marriage to be honoring to him because it pleases him and it gives him glory. You wouldn't say, we need to get along because Pastor Steve will be displeased. That's lame. You certainly wouldn't say, we need to get along because Governor Newsom would be displeased. That you almost might say, if it displeases him, then we shouldn't get along. You know, that's a, that's a whole other issue. But if you say we should honor God, because he is glorified when we are one flesh, when we are united in spirit, in love. There's another implication to marriage as a covenant. It gives greater accountability before God. I want to be very clear about this, about this accountability. Marriage is a gift to all mankind by God whether the married couple acknowledges it or not. And for the one who refuses to trust Christ as Savior, that person will face God in judgment for having refused God's gift of salvation and having lived a life of total selfishness, breathing God's air, eating God's food, drinking God's water, using God's resources, and using or abusing God's gift of marriage without even acknowledging Him. And for the married person who is in Christ, sometimes heartbreakingly you end up married to an unbeliever through various circumstances, but God still holds you to be the husband and wife that he's designed, that he has defined. So those are the origins, the definition, and the nature of marriage. But what's, what's the purpose of marriage? Why did God do this? And two very simple reasons. One, for God's glory, and two, to bless mankind. For God's glory and to bless mankind. Marriage is, first of all, for the glory of God. Marriage is the means by which humanity fulfills God's mandate to populate the earth, to exercise kingly authority as commanded in Genesis 1.28. Marriage enables humanity to best reflect their status as image bearers. Male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. Marriage provides this portrait of God's loving relationship with his people. His covenant love is portrayed in scripture numerous times in terms of a marriage. 
And so marriage allows us as human beings to better understand the nature of God's love for his covenant people. And God receives glory when the Christ-exalting marriage demonstrates honor to God through obedience. It serves as a blessing to the family, a testimony of the the life-changing power of God in the lives of sinners. And listen, I've seen this so many times. It's a delight to see when when a married couple comes to faith in Christ, especially when they come together. What's the first thing that happens? Their marriage changes. Before Before they've even read a single marriage book, before they've heard a single sermon, before they've gone through whatever class or small group on marriage, their marriage changes. Why? Because their hearts changed. And suddenly they're living for Christ, not for self. There's a big difference between marriages that strive for personal happiness and those that strive for obedience to the Lord. And the other purpose of marriage is for the blessing of mankind. So many blessings we can name. First of all, marriage promotes basic happiness of the couple. Genesis 2.18 states that being alone is not good. What's the opposite? Not being alone is good. And God provided a companion with whom to walk through life. Solomon writes in, uh, proverbially in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that life is much more easily managed with a partner to uplift you, to keep you warm, to give you strength. Marriage authorizes sexual intimacy, providing the God-ordained venue for the mysteries and the pleasures of intimacy within marriage. And so it promotes the basic happiness of a, of a couple. And we hear this phrase all the time, are you happily married? What does that mean? Well, it means that marriage is a means to having that joy that helps in a sinful world. Your marriage ought to be kind of a little haven away from the sinful world. You see why Satan wants to bring sin into it? To invade that safe space. There's a second reason marriage is a blessing for mankind. It, it stimulates holiness and Christ-likeness. You want to become like Christ a lot faster? Get married. Because what are you doing? You're living with a mirror all the time. You see the necessity of showing grace as commanded in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Selflessness is demonstrated in Romans 15, 1 and 2. This is best offered in the context of marriage. Listen to Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor, i.e. husband or wife, for his good to build him up. And then, of course, as we would say, marriage profits the community. Society and children are best served by stable marriages. Breakdowns in marriage cost the community financially, cost the community emotionally. You know, if the whole world viewed marriage the way God does, there would be 60 million more people in America today because babies wouldn't be aborted, because they would be seen as part of the blessing of marriage. We would have no foster care system. I've been a part of understanding the foster care system. You know what the foster care system is? It's the result of failed marriages. That's where it ultimately comes from, or from a view of marriage that says it doesn't matter. And so we have... A profit to the community. Every stable marriage makes the, the community better. How important is marriage in the Bible? Did you know that the Bible is bookended by marriage? It begins with human marriage. Adam and Eve, who for a time enjoyed perfect fellowship, companionship, sexual joy, kinship, communion together. And it ends with a marriage. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is the consummation of Christ's work on the cross which has provided unbroken, unending fellowship, companionship, communion with God, not just for a lifetime but for all eternity where the picture of marriage is now made real with God. I hope I've convinced you that marriage is a high and lofty institution. Let's look at it lived out just for a moment. Turn with me to Song of Solomon 3 because here we have the beginning of the married life of Solomon and Shulam. And the beginning is spectacular. Now for all of you young ladies... 
don't be intimidated by what we're about to see. There is not a man on earth who can afford the wedding we're about to look at. <laughs> there is only one, and there will only be one. So someday, when you get to heaven, you can ask Shulamith, what was that like? Because we'll never know. What we have here is the beginning of the married life of Solomon and Shulamith. The beginning is amazing. It's spectacular. It's high. It's lofty. It demonstrates just how exalted marriage is to be. Now, remember what's been happening here. Solomon and Shulamith had been separated during the wintertime when she had likely returned to southern Lebanon with her family, to her family home. But now she was excited to hear him coming. Chapter 2, verse 8, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. But you remember that she was withdrawn. She was hesitant. She was emotionally, chapter 2, verse 14, hidden in the clefts of the rock like a dove. She was tucked away in the safety of her family home. They had to work through the issues facing them before they could fully commit. <coughs> they had to catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. So you remember that. But they worked through those issues, and then they're united in spirit and in mutual ownership. And now, as you recall, in chapter 2, verse 17, their desire for one another is such that, that she shoes him away until the right time. What is happening here? Why are they not married yet? You remember that one of the foxes, probably the main one that they would have to deal with, is the fact that Solomon was going to live a life that was utterly different than any other man, surrounded by wealth and surrounded by women. And so certainly this would be a decision she had to think through. The clear implication here is that she's making her final decision as to whether or not she's going to commit to a lifetime of marriage to Solomon. Well, apparently, she has sent word to Solomon by means of a messenger that she is ready to be married. And day by day, we can imagine her outside the family home in southern Lebanon, looking toward the south, looking toward Jerusalem, awaiting word from Solomon. And then one day, he sent for her. And oh, does he do it in style. And now she's been picked up. But from the reader's vantage point, we don't know how. And now this gets very mysterious. There's a lot of drama here because suddenly the scene shifts back south to Jerusalem. And it's as if we're there and we're looking to the north and we're waiting the arrival, awaiting the arrival of the bride. And we're wondering what's going to happen. How will she arrive? Will she be walking? Will she be on a donkey? No. She has gone from being the country maiden Solomon grew up with as a child to becoming his queen. And so as we watch from Jerusalem looking to the north, first we see and we smell something. Chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Now it starts off, what is that? More precisely in Hebrew, who is this? It's a feminine pronoun. Who is this woman? So there's a guess happening here. What is this happening? And she's coming from the wilderness. This is the very right and, and correct description for the route from southern Lebanon down to Jerusalem. You went through some, some terrible areas, some canyons and so forth. But before we see her, before we see how she's traveling, there's something like this light, hazy smoke in columns. It's, it's going up. And you wonder, what is that? Not only can you see that something that seems like light, hazy smoke, you can smell it. But it's not smoke. It's the burning of massive quantities of wildly expensive frankincense and still fairly expensive myrrh. This is someone traveling in such style that servants are burning enough incense along the way to make certain that everyone down the road for miles and everyone all around Everyone watching from Jerusalem smells the aroma of wealth and extravagance. Let me put it this way. Picture driving to San Diego and paving the road with gold bricks all the way. That's what's happening here. And that's before we even see what the source of this aroma is. Now the source of the aroma comes into sight. 
Verse 7. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. Now again, this is the vantage point of us watching from Jerusalem, looking to the north, and now coming over the horizon, we see the litter of Solomon. This is a carriage or a couch, is the word in Hebrew, on which servants would carry a king. And it's Solomon's own litter. Now, this isn't just a little chair with four guys carrying it. This is a carriage. This is something that probably had a door, that had a roof, that had ornate uh, uh, carvings and so forth. This would have been carried by many, many strong men. Why is this the case? Because a great king did not go to personally pick up their wives. They sent an escort to get her and to bring her to his house, to his palace. You may recall that Solomon's father, David, had 30 mighty men as his personal faithful loyal guard. Well, not to be outdone, Solomon has 60 men that he sent all the way to southern Lebanon to pick up Shulamith. I I can't even put myself in these shoes exactly, but can you imagine? We we talked about Shulamith and her mother living on the, the family home in southern Lebanon. Not wealthy people. They're workers. They're vineyard workers. But can you imagine Shulamith and her mother, how they must have reacted? Because this carriage was coming toward them before it went south to Jerusalem. It came north from Jerusalem, and they see the incense coming, and they smell this, and they see these 60 mighty warriors just looking strong and handsome, showing up to their family home, and her mother saying, oh, I look terrible. I have nothing to wear whatsoever. And she's saying, Mom, it's not about you. All these soldiers coming the lead warrior, no doubt in humble homage to his soon-to-be queen, bowing as he delivers the message that Solomon awaits her arrival and has sent his very best men and his carriage to pick her up. And by the way, almost certainly sent some changes of clothes too so that she's dressed like a queen. From this moment on, for the rest of her life, she's safe. In a world where thieves and bandits and thugs ruled whole territories in which traveling was dangerous, just living was dangerous, from this moment on, she will never have another fear. Verse 8, speaking of these mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, an expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. These aren't decorative swords. These aren't plastic swords at the rent-a-wedding sword company. These are real soldiers who have killed men in battle and have no hesitancy doing it again, particularly to protect the queen. But it's likely now that this carriage has picked her up and we see it approaching Jerusalem. This isn't just Solomon's carriage. This is a carriage that he had built just for her. How do we know this? Because there's a description of it. Verse 9. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. doesn't mean that he made a carriage for himself. It means he had it made himself. Some have even speculated that he helped do the work on it. He was still a young man, and that certainly could be plausible. It's the wood of Lebanon. Where's Shulamith from? She's from southern Lebanon. This is somewhat of a, 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 an homage to her. He loved expensive wood. 1 Kings 10.27 says that he made the foreign wood cedar as plentiful as natural trees growing in Israel. There was no supply chain crisis in the days of King Solomon. And of course, Lebanon was known for its forests, and so it's very much like he's having a little bit of home brought with her to Jerusalem. All young ladies, when they get married, they want to bring some parts of their home with them. There's a sense of comfort there, and so Solomon says, I'm bringing part of your home I'm bringing actual wood from your home. But that's just the frame. The carriage or the couch, some translations calls it the sedan chair. It was ultra wondrous. It had golden posts. The wooden frame was covered in silver. It had a rare purple cloth covering the seat. So you see why you had to have some hefty young men who were lifting this thing because there's golden posts. I imagine these young men watching the thing be, be created and they're going, really gold? I better get to the gym. This thing's going to be heavy. 
And whatever decorations are inside this carriage are skillfully made and installed by the young women of Jerusalem. Verse 10, he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its inlaid, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. And so there, there's decorations. It's, it's, like a, it's like a little miniature palace. Let me come get you in the closest thing that they had to a limousine. Frankly, it's probably way better than a limousine. And so verse 10 ends with the daughters of Jerusalem putting the finishing touches on this with their skill. Now, speaking of the daughters of Jerusalem, as the carriage with Shulamith inside approaches, and no doubt, again, that she's been given some queenly clothing, now the scene shifts for a moment to Solomon. The daughters of Jerusalem are to look at his splendor. Verse 11 Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Solomon is wearing a crown placed on his head by his own mother, specifically for the wedding day. The implication here is that while attention is turned to Solomon, as the carriage arrives, a new queen becomes the center of attention once again. I can't help but thinking back to Solomon, Song of Solomon 1, verse 6, where Shulamith says, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked at me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of a, of a dirty farm worker who's, who's filthy from the day, and she's tanned to, to a point that would not be considered beautiful. And certainly, if she's saying, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because some, some of the young ladies of Jerusalem, the ladies of the court, were saying, huh, Solomon's dating her? Well, who gets the last laugh now? This is the original Cinderella story. That the least likely now becomes queen. Remember, Shulamith was concerned that they catch the little foxes, the potential problems in their relationships, including the fact that Solomon is surrounded by women. What does verse 11 say to all the women around Solomon for the daughters of Zion to look at Solomon on the day of his wedding? What does it say? It says, Shulamith wins. She wins. Now, again, for all the brides-to-be hearing this, don't set your heart on the wedding procession quite like this one. Before I got married, all I could afford was did you know they made diamonds in two-dimensional sizes? I didn't know that, but they do, where you turn it one way and it disappears completely. It just appears to be a large diamond, but then you turn it. That's all I could afford. It was a lot for me. But I want to be very clear that even though Solomon was soon to be the wealthiest man on the, on the planet, his wealth isn't the point of the extravagance. That's not the point. What was the point was that marriage is seen in Song of Solomon as high, as lofty, as royal, as heavenly. If that view of marriage could permeate your thinking every day, how much more satisfying and joyful might your marriage relationship be? God has given me a husband. God has given me a wife. This is a royal institution. This is a heavenly institution. This is a godly institution. It's to be honored. It's to be lofty. It's to be weighty. It's to be filled with gravitas and, and import. For all those yet to be married, I think it's very, very important that you cherish and have a high and lofty view of marriage and not turn your nose at this. Other than salvation, it is perhaps the most special thing God can do for you in this lifetime. I want to make this as practical as we can. For all of those who are married, I have a series of questions to ask just based on these verses. And my urging to you is to ask these questions of yourself and maybe to discuss them with your spouse. If you're looking for an assignment, this is it. In verse 6, the fragrance of the joy and the exalted nature of this situation goes before Shulamith, the, the fragrance of the, the frankincense and the myrrh. And my first question would be this, what is the fragrance of your marriage that goes before you? What's the fragrance of your marriage? What is the witness to those around you of what 
a Christ-honoring, Holy Spirit-transformed marriage looks like. All of us thrive on example, and we need to be examples to one another. 1 Corinthians 11 even speaks of of a, a woman being godly in her marriage so that God will be honored and not dishonored to the world. What is the fragrance of your marriage that goes before you? Doesn't it follow that if all of our lives are changed because of Christ, that every aspect of our life should be changed as well? There's another question. In verses 7 and 8, Solomon has dispatched mighty warriors to protect his bride and his upcoming marriage. Here's my question. What are the mighty warriors that you've dispatched to guard and to protect and to cherish your marriage? What are the warriors that you've put out there? Warriors like guaranteed time together. Warriors like constant communication, quick repentance, sorrow over sin, correctability, teachability, tenderness, intimacy that's prioritized, knowing each other, loving each other the way the other desires to be loved, words of affection, words of care, prayer, time in the word, faithfulness in the church. Whether the guardians, whether the mighty men that you've set at your front door and all around your marriage, because the fewer of those you have, the more likely it is the enemy will get in. So another question in verses 9 and 10, Solomon has made the vehicle for his bride out of the very best of the best high-end materials available. Here's my question for you. How can you treat your spouse like royalty? How can you treat your spouse like royalty? As someone worthy of this sort of adornment? Or would you rather just drag through life seeing the other person as someone that you got stuck with? That's usually a two-way street. That if you see your spouse as someone you got stuck with, that same thought's probably going the other way as well. You want to love your spouse like he or she is royal? You want to have that, that affection in your heart? It's very simple. Treat him or her like royalty and your affection will follow. Your wife is the queen of your home. Your husband is the king of the home. And your home might be so small that you can lay down twice and hit the opposite walls. But it's still your home. One more question. In verse 11, the wedding procession ends with the phrase, the day of the gladness of his heart. How sad it is if your wedding day was the happiest day of your marriage. That should just be the start. Here's my question then. What do you do to help cause gladness of heart? What do you do to help cause gladness of heart? Are you motivated by the high calling of being married? That you want to be the solution to the darkness and the pain that life will undoubtedly bring? When you come together as husband and wife at the end of a day when perhaps you haven't seen each other, is your first response when you've smiled for everyone else all day to let that smile drop three seconds before you see your spouse? And to show her just the worst part of yourself? How about the other way around? Be the sunshine. Be the sunshine that warms your home. And if you aren't sure what that means, it's very simple. Ask your spouse, how can I cause gladness of heart for you? And they'll tell you. They'll tell you how to do that. How glorious marriage is meant to be. The first institution given by God to glorify himself and to bless us. Solomon, he was bringing his bride to his father's house. And he sent for her by means of his mighty men. I don't know about you, but when I read this wedding procession, it brings to mind a very familiar promise. It's a promise made by a heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. By the way, according to Luke 16 and 1 Thessalonians 4, your trip to his father's house will be accompanied not by mighty men, but by the very angels of heaven. That's the heavenly version of the mighty men. And the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, if you can believe this, will have you reign with him as royalty of his kingdom. The story of Shulamith is our story. 
from nobody who says, don't look at me because I'm a nobody, to being the very bride of Christ. It's an amazing story. So her story is yours. I, I hope that in your home, marriage is high, it's exalted, it is glorified, it is important, it is prioritized, it is God-honoring, it is a mirror of what Scripture would say. So do whatever it takes to do that. I hope you'll take some of those questions and take them to heart. It'll be beneficial to you and glorifying to God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for how you get into the very details of our lives. You don't leave us to just make implications and guesses about what it means to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. You tell us in every area of life, you tell us how to behave as employers, as employees, as parents, as children, as church members, as church leaders, and certainly as husbands and wives. You even address this book, Lord, not just to the married, but you address this book to young unmarried women. It is for them. And certainly by implication for any young unmarried person to see God's view of marriage and to have a proper view And so, Lord, that's our prayer. Marriage is given certainly as a blessing to the community and particularly a blessing to the community of faith. And so I pray, Lord, for our church that we would be characterized by marriages that are high and lofty, filled with joy, that work hard at that one flesh unity. Husbands who will love their wives as Christ loved the church Wives who will submit to their husbands and honor them as to the Lord. And husbands and wives together who will seek to love one another and to serve one another. And to make each other the king and the queen of the home. May this be what characterizes the marriages here in our church, Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.